0: Have you ever been um, in just a fast-flowing river, um, or, or maybe you've seen, maybe you've stand on the ground of, of uh, dry land and watched just a weaver, river run fast and furious? Um, back in, in the 1990s, I was asked to go on a trip up to the Boulder, Colorado area, to a conference called Promise Keeper. Some of you guys may remember that or are uh, familiar with that. Um, and part of the trip was that before we go to the conference, um, we were going to go whitewater rafting down a river called the Pooter River. Now, laugh a little bit. All right, Pooter. that's funny, okay. Uh, but the Pooter River, uh, P-O-U-D-R-E, goes through Fort Collins and... Um, We were going to go and we were going to go down that. I'm thinking after, we probably should have done that after the conference, right? Just in case anyone was unsaved on the trip because... This thing was crazy. This thing was crazy, and I didn't know that. I mean, we're, we're driving up there uh, from, from Carrollton to uh, Colorado, and we're driving up there, and I hear all the chatter that like, yeah, hey, this river is like a four and a five, and I'm thinking, I don't know what that means, you know? I'm thinking, is the water four feet tall or something? I mean, I don't know, and, and then they're saying things like, hey, yeah, there's some areas it's, you know, we gotta get out and walk, and I'm thinking, because it's dry, you know, like New Bronville's or something like that. I mean, that's what I'm thinking and so my whole experience to this point is you know six flags i mean the white water raft right there right that's what i'm thinking this is cool i'm gonna get a little wet so we get out and uh, we get there and they they start we start putting wetsuits on and then i start thinking dude this is pretty serious and they're like hey you you know it's very cold if you get in the water i'm like we're getting the water why are we gonna get in the water and and all this kind of stuff so we get on and then i start seeing this thing and then I mean, the whole thing's white. I mean, this thing's just capped. I mean, it's capping here and there and just wait. I'm like, dude, this, oh, I'm getting in that. And yeah, and we did. And so they're like, hey, if, you know, be sure if somebody falls out, you know, just grab, you know, grab their, you know, their arm or their forearm and they're giving us all these. And I'm like, dude, this is serious, you know? And I'm thinking, and sure enough, we get in there and this thing is wild as advertised. It's crazy. And then, and then I'm thinking. I saw some of the areas. I'm, I was so thankful that we were getting out and we're walking. Um, almost lost one guy. So, so. But we 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 got him. Uh, we got him back in. And so, uh, pr- pretty crazy ride. It was untamed, um, and it was truly the best ride of my life. It was amazing. And I thought about that this week as I was looking at this scripture, and when you think about the kingdom of God, is not that what the kingdom of God is like. It's like an untamed river. At times, it seems it's got this surge of energy that that can change a landscape. It's an unexplainable movement. It, It takes people for the ride of their lives. It's what the kingdom of God's like. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. It's a great way to sum up this text this morning. It's like a river that is untamed. It's like a ride you'll never have before. It's unbelievable. And that's what happens when Jesus builds his church. He changes lives and he changes cities. He changes the landscape of the world. And so this morning what we see that the church Is built and we see how Jesus builds His church right here as it's birthed here in the first century. And so, as we look at this this morning, I'm going to give you six points, um, and then I'm going to give you a seventh one that's that's kind of uh, kind of the end goal, kind of a summation. And as we do that, we're going to flesh out these these ten verses. And so, look at verse 37. We talked about this last week. Um, I felt that we we kind of ducked in and ducked out. So I thought, hey, let's give some more attention to these verses this morning. So look at Acts 2, look, Listen to what is said here. And thank you, Scott, for reading verse 36 as well. We're going to go back to that also. So thank you for that. Look at verse 37. It says, now when they heard this, I'll tell you what this is in a second, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Now, if you haven't been here maybe in the last couple weeks or so, or maybe it's your first time with us, or maybe last week was your first time, um, I want to remind you what, what's going on here. And so this is the day of Pentecost, a special celebration. There is probably 50 to maybe 100,000 Jews that have gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate uh, this celebration. And uh, this is some 50 days after uh, Passover celebration. They're here for this celebration. Jews would come from all over the place, some 20 miles from Jerusalem, and they gathered in the city. They all speak different dialects. So this isn't your basic Greek and Aramaic speaking crowd. This is all different types of dialects. You got some Spanglish going on. You got all this kind of stuff that that they're speaking. And if you remember what's happening on this day, the Holy Spirit has come and now is indwelling the 120 believers that were gathered there included in that is the 12 apostles. And and so the Spirit comes with wind and fire, but in chapter 2 verse 6, what does it say? It says there is a sound. Now that sound is the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit inside the believers producing what? Gospel proclamation in many different dialects. And here's the news, these apostles and these believers that are there that day, the 120, they hadn't spoken these languages before. They they were not native to these languages. And so they're speaking these different dialects, and the crowd is drawn to the sound of the gospel proclamation in these many different languages. And they're asking the question, aren't these guys and, and, and these girls, aren't they Galileans? They're from Galilee, yet they're speaking all these languages. And so they hear this sound. The crowd is drawn to them. So, so get the scene. Get the picture. This is a buzzing crowd. This is like 50,000, 100,000 people. And, and they're, it's celebration time, right? They're there for the feast. Uh, It's a holy time for, for the Jews. And then they hear this gospel proclaimed in many different languages. And they hear as Peter takes the stand and he says about Jesus that Jesus did miracles, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus ascended to heaven. And he says to the crowd, know this for certain, that Jesus is both... Lord and Messiah. And he looks at the crowd, and this is where we pick up verse 37, because right before it, he says that he is the one whom you crucified. Can you imagine that? You're in the crowd that day, and you hear these words, whom you crucified. And so... Luke picks it up here in verse 37 and says, after hearing this, after hearing the gospel, and after hearing this very convicting word, what happens? They are pierced to the heart. They're cut to the heart. That term right there, pierced, is this idea of like this unexpected like cutting or this unexpected stabbing. but But the reference here is to the heart. That they're convicted. This is very important. This is interesting because these Jews, they get rituals, right? They're down with ceremonial cleanings. They're down with coming to the temple for these festivals and things like that. They're down with religion. They got this thing figured out. They even got a little sprinkle of repentance here and there. They're down with that, right? They're down with that. But here, something different happens. Their hard hearts are cut to the core they're convicted over this statement that you have crucified jesus they're cut to the core now this right here is significant because this is what god does when he regenerates and changes someone he gives them he takes their hard heart and he gives them a heart of flesh a new heart that's what ezekiel says a new heart and that's what he's doing here. Because dead people, all right, that they can't just do religion to cover up their deadness and, and pretend they're alive. They're dead. And so right here, God does the work of taking a dead heart and he begins to what? He makes it new. He makes it new. And that's what's happening here. This is huge on this day. And so he cuts them. He pierces them to the heart as they have grief and spiritual remorse over sin. And the fact that this conviction of, hey, we're all responsible. Now, they weren't all standing at the cross, right, like soldiers that day? No. And and, and so what it means is all our sin, that's what Peter's going to say, that the sin of the world Jesus bore in his body, right? And so that statement is for all of us this morning. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. And that's good news, right? It's good news. But it should pierce our heart and bring conviction over sin. And so they ask the question, well, what do we do? What do we do? We're, this is happening, right? And that's a great question, but what do we do? And listen to what Peter says. Peter says in verse 38, two key things. He says, repent and be baptized. I want you, as you think about this this morning, these are two separate things. The order is vital. It's important. Repent comes first, then baptism, Okay. And let me explain these things. Repent is the word metaneo. It means to have a change of mind. It it means to turn and go in a different direction. And so in the context here, it's the idea that instead of rejecting Jesus, like many of these were, they were rejecting him as the Messiah. It's now I am accepting him. I'm embracing him as the Messiah, the one who saves. Because remember, the Jews were looking for the Messiah, but they weren't accepting Jesus as the Messiah. But on this day, there are going to be those who are cut and pierced to their heart who are now going to... Repent! They're going to embrace Jesus and believe in him as the Messiah. And so you remember John the Baptist came and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came and said the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what does repentance include? It, re- it includes conviction over sin that produces this, this change, this, this turning. Um, it's accepting Jesus, not merely as a man, but as both Lord and Christ. It's believing. It's, it's trusting in Christ and who he is. And, and this is when salvation comes. When one is saved, this is what happens. They, they turn from rejecting Jesus, and now they embrace him as Savior and Lord, and they trust in the sufficiency of his work on the cross for them. And they are given eternal life. And so Peter says, one must repent. They must have a change of perspective, a a new heart, a change of thinking, and a changed life. And then he says, each of you be baptized. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing a little bit because he says, each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I want you to see this text this morning. You look at verse 38 in in, in this way. You look at repent, all right? And then connect repentance to for the forgiveness of sins and the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then look at baptism right here. You see, the act of baptism doesn't bring forgiveness of sin. It doesn't bring the gift of the Holy Spirit because what is baptism? In this text, some believe, we talked a little bit about this last week, that some believe that baptism here refers to the idea of a spiritual baptism, that you're united with Jesus to his death and his resurrection. That's one view, we talked about that last week. But the primary view here is that he has in mind water baptism. This is immersion, okay? This being immersed into water. In the New Testament, the apostles t- took it for granted that you just knew if you repented and believed in Jesus, the next thing you did is you were baptized into water. That's what happened. I mean, in fact, in a few chapters later, we're going to see Philip. He's hanging out with this Ethiopian eunuch, and he is explaining to him, Philip is, what the gospel is by using this text in Isaiah. And then the Ethiopian sees water and he says, Shouldn't we be baptized? I mean, that's interesting. I mean, how many today, when they come to Christ, you know, say they're passing a fountain or a lake or a pond or something and say, hey, 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 I, I just accepted Christ. Shouldn't I go be baptized? And, and that's, that's what it was in that day. That, it was the mark, and we'll talk about that in a second. It was the mark of believers who turn to Christ. And, and so look at the text here. Repent and be baptized. So if you want to read it this way, here's how I would read it. Um, repent for the purpose of the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks. That's the promise that Jesus promised that the apostles would come when he ascended into heaven. They waited for that. Ten days later, we see that here on the day of Pentecost. It happens. And then the second part of that is, and each of you be baptized as a testimony, right, of your repentance and faith. Now that's key because there's some branches of, they call it Christianity, I don't know if I call it Christianity, but uh, I, in fact, I wouldn't this morning, but they believe that it's repent and then you also have to be baptized for salvation and forgiveness of sins. That's not the message of the gospel, that's not Christianity. And so there's some confusion even in our culture today, like uh, groups like the Church of Christ will, will believe that way. Um, and that's not the gospel. That's not what Peter is saying here, okay? You repent, that's how one is forgiven of sins. That, that's how it comes. Um, but he's speaking of water baptism here. So what do we learn about water baptism? It comes after repentance, after one believes. Well, here it's magnified as what? A big deal. It's a big deal. We probably don't magnify baptism like we should, But the apostles did because Jesus did. It was a big deal. What did it signify? It signified one who had repented and believed. The idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not even entertained in the New Testament. It wouldn't make sense to the apostles. They wouldn't get that. And so let me ask a few questions this morning. Why does one be baptized? Why be baptized? The first thing that we see in Scripture uh, is you want to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus was baptized. And so we want to identify with Jesus and show that we're now united with him in his death and his resurrection. The third reason is we want to obey. In Matthew 28, verse 19, uh, the apostles were told to go into all nations, discipling, but also what? Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's an act of obedience Why also? Because it demonstrates that I am a believer. It shows that I'm a believer. And what does it picture? So the why, but now the what. What does it picture? It pictures as one stands in water, they were dead in their sins, but then they're taken underwater, they're united, they're immersed into the water. And so it's a picture of being united with Jesus in his death, in his resurrection. And then you're raised up out of the water in the newness of life. You're changed. And so it's a picture of, of that it's a physical picture of what has happened to one spiritually is now they have a new heart they've been changed and now they walk in the newness of life and so that last question is when does this happen when does one get baptized after they believe see the order right here repent believe uh repent and believe and be baptized and that's what peter calls them to um And then look at verse 39. We'll talk more about this in a second, but look at verse 39. Then he tells them this. He says, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And so this promise, if you go back to verse 33, is referring to the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So everything he just talked about, repenting and and being baptized, and when you repent, you're forgiven of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's saying this promise that has been made is for you. So he's looking at the crowd of these thousands of Jews, and he says it's for you and your children and for those who are far off, the dispersed Jews that are scattered abroad, the Gentiles, meaning it's for everybody. Now, that's an interesting verse because that sounds very similar to some of the language in the Old Testament when talking about uh, Abraham and his descendants and, and that language of from one generation to the next. And so this promise is for all, but for whom? Whom God calls. And so God is the one who initiates this piercing of the heart and repentance. He's calling them. He's regenerating them. He's calling them to repentance that they would believe. And then look at verse 40. Listen to what he says. As he continues to preach to them, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So he's calling them to be rescued from this perverse generation. This is very interesting. The word perverse carries with it the idea of um, both, uh, what would you call it, uh, moral and ethical purity. He was calling them to that. But who is this generation? What's he talking about, this perverse generation? Generation here is not specifically talking about like a people set set apart in a certain time period. Like I'm part of a generation and I'm set apart by a time period. He's not necessarily talking about that. It's more like the generation meaning a nation or a race. And what he's saying here is be set apart from the perverse nation, the perverse race. Who is that? And what does he mean? What he's talking about is be, set up, uh, be saved, be rescued from the unbelieving Jews. So he just, got, he just got done telling them, you crucified Jesus, and now he's saying to the crowd of unbelieving Jews, be saved from yourself, right? Be saved and rescued, you unbelieving Jews. This language also carries with it judgment. Jesus, when he was here on earth, in places like Matthew 21, 22, 23, and 24, he talked about judgment coming upon this perverse generation, coming to specifically Jerusalem because they were unbelieving. And so this carries with it that idea. What's interesting, in AD 70, what happens? Titus comes, if you know your history, Titus comes and he invades Jerusalem He destroys the temple, the Jews are scattered. That's an act of judgment that Jesus was talking about would come upon the unbelieving Jews. And so Jesus is saying here, be delivered from judgment. Be delivered from judgment. Ultimate judgment, obviously, right? From eternal death, but be delivered from that. And then look at verse 41, they respond. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. So they received the word. What does it mean? They believed, they accepted what Peter was saying about Jesus, who he is, and the sufficient work that he did to bring forgiveness of sins. They believed it to be true. And so what did they do? In response, they were baptized. And so here, what do we see with this crowd? They repent. They believe in Jesus. And then they do this act of obedience. They are baptized. Now, this is interesting. Remember what Jesus told the disciples? He said in Matthew 28, 19, go to all nations, disciple them, baptize them. This is the fulfillment of that. And that fulfillment even continues today. And so they're baptized. Um, think about baptism. If, if we look at the, the Scripture as a whole, we see back in the Old Testament, there was a mark. There was a mark that was given to the physical sons of Abraham. And that mark was circumcision. And it was administered to the physical sons of Abraham who made up physical Israel. And so it's interesting here, now you have baptism, who is now the mark of the spiritual sons of Abraham, who make up the church. And and so, who are the spiritual sons of Abraham? Who constitute the people of God in these last days, right? That's what Peter said last week, in these last days. Well, in Galatians 3, 7, listen to what Paul says. Paul says, so you see that it is men of faith who are the sons of of Abraham. So this new thing, since Jesus has come, is that the covenant people of God are no longer a political ethnic nation. No longer are they that, but now they're a body of believers. And that's what's happening right here in verse 41. They respond, they repent, and now they're being baptized. And so you have the birth of the church right here in front of you, This morning, and this is how Jesus builds his church. Back in Matthew 16, verse 18, um, Jesus was talking to Peter. Remember, Peter's name was Petros, little rock, okay? And he said this to Peter He said, Upon this rock, and and that word, the rock, is a bigger rock. Um, The idea was upon the testimony of Peter and the apostles, Jesus said, I will build my church. And so what's the testimony? What's the witness of Peter and the apostles? It's the truth that Jesus is the son of the living God and that he is the Christ. And Jesus says, upon that message, upon that testimony, the proclamation of the gospel, I will build my church. And that's what we see happening here today. It's like in places like Ephesians 2.20, we even see this as well. It's, it's the foundation that Jesus builds his church upon. He's the great architecture and, he, architecture, and he builds it upon the witness and the testimony of the apostles. And he continues to do that together, fitting us together as his people and the great building, um, not physical building, but the people of God. And so Peter and the apostles proclaim the gospel and they respond. I want you to think about this this morning. Just sit back, think for a second, okay? When you think about when you came into the kingdom of God, when you repented and believed in Christ, who shared the gospel with you? Who shared the gospel with you? For some of us, we got to go back kind of in the foul cabinet, right? We got to go back so, some ways. For, for some of us, it, it's a little closer. It, our, our salvation happened more recent. But, but who shared the gospel with you? I mean, I think I read this and I think, man, that'd be amazing. You know, maybe it's more amazing now as we read it some 2,000 years ago that you would say, hey, Peter shared the gospel with me. You know I mean? That'd be pretty cool. Um, but who shared the gospel with you? Because it's just as significant, just as important. And you're going to be looking at this in the first two chapters of Walk Across the Room in our life groups. Um, you're going to be encouraged this week, and so I want to encourage you to do this this week to think about who shared the gospel with you. And I want you to write a note to that person. If they're still live and, and if you can get in contact with them, write a note to them, right? And say, hey, thank you for sharing the gospel with me. Or maybe that person is no longer alive, and, or maybe you, you're out of contact with them. Maybe there's somebody that you see now around you that is faithfully sharing the gospel to others and you maybe just want to write a note to him and say, hey, thank you. Thank you for actively being the rock that Jesus is building the church upon because that's what he's doing on the witness and the testimony that he is the son of the living God and that he's the Messiah. That's what he's building his church upon. And so I want to encourage you to to do that this week. Now, just a few more minutes. I I want to show you. I know this is going to seem pretty fast and it is going to be fast. Look at the last few verses here. So who is the church? Um, it's, it's not a building. We see that here. It's not an organization, but it's a people who's alive by the presence of, of Christ in them, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And um, it's an organism. It's, it's living. It's vibrant. Okay? Um, I told you I'd give you six points. I've given you two already. Who is the church that, that Jesus builds? Who are they? Uh, first of all, they, re- they repent and believe. That's what they do. That's number one. The second is they're baptized. That's that's number two. But look at the rest of the text here. Look at verse 42. Before we do, though, let let me do this real quick. Let me give you two verses. Can I just give this to you real quick? They'll be up on the screen. Maybe you just want to jot down the address. Let me give you two verses, because I think it's important to see as we read this text, these people, their lives are changed, and they go from living for this one thing to now completely living for something completely different. And so what is that? So let me give you these two verses so you know what that is. Uh, 1 Peter 2.9. Listen to what Peter says. But you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there's the purpose, Right? There's the purpose of why God is, is setting apart a people and redeeming them, that they would share the excellencies of who he is. And then, second, listen to Ephesians 3.10, because this even gets cosmic, all right? This is cool. Look at Ephesians 3.10. He says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through who? The church. Okay? Now remember that's not an organization, it's an alive, living organism. It's people. Right, not just staff, not just elders, not just pastors. They do this too, but it's the church. It's the people of God. And so that God would make known the manifold wisdom to be made known through the church to who? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So we're talking angels here, man. So that through the witness of the church, how you do life together, how you love each other, and through your witness of who God is, that he is real, um, his wisdom, and the glory of who he is. As we express that in and through our life, it is even a testimony, a witness to angels. And so get up in the morning and think about that tomorrow, right? That, hey, my life is on display in the heavenly places. And even a witness to angels. Wow. That's what the church is. That's big. That's big. So, what do they do? Look at verse 42. And I'm just, I'm not going to go slow here. We're going to go pretty fast. So, look at verse 42. Verse 41, this happens on a particular day, the day of Pentecost. Verse 42, this is now the new life that they experience as the church. It says, they were continually devoting themselves. They, it's now the church, the people who have repented, believed, and been baptized. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so they, they gathered together. And the third thing I want you to get to this morning is... The church that Jesus is building, they gather around the exhortation of Scripture. It's huge. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says that man should not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The apostles' teaching. And then it says they're continually devoted to fellowship. What is fellowship? It's partnership. They shared ideas. They shared attitudes. They shared purpose together. They shared life together. The third thing here, not only fellowship, but they also... Um, broke bread together. They shared meals together, but emphasized here is the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread. Jesus said, "I, I break this bread, the bread of my body. That's what it represents. And the wine represents my blood. And they broke bread. They shared that together. So the fourth thing is, is the church together celebrates the Lord's Supper. That's what they do. That's what they do. And we do that at the end of the service even today. And then look at verse Uh, 43. It says here, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Miracles were happening. We're going to see in Acts, that's going to happen. And that's what Peter said Jesus did when when he was here on earth in verse 22, that God did miracles through him. And it continues to happen even through The life of the apostles, God is going to work in an amazing way. Look at verse 44 and 45. He says, and all those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so what do we see? The fifth thing is, is the church is assembled together. That's big. They come together. They're together. Not only that, they share their possessions. They, They sacrificially love each other. And they take care of pressing needs. And then in verse 46, it says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. It says here they were praising God together. The sixth and final thing is they gathered together. And they worshiped together. That worship included prayer. That worship, no doubt, included singing together. They gathered in the temple. What did they do in the temple? They probably discussed the word of God. That's what happened in the temple. They probably even evangelized in the temple. That's what they were doing on the day of Pentecost, right? And they probably continued that. And so I want you to step back and I want you to see this this morning. In light of what has happened, this river of God blows through this city, cuts to the heart of how many does it say here? 3,000 souls that day. 3,000 were baptized. Now, that was a huge crowd, and, and, and 3,000 stepped forward. They repent, and they're baptized. And if you look at verse 43 through 47, we're not going to read it, but I want you to, what we just read, what are they doing with each other? That they're, they're sharing what they have. And it says in verse 47, as a result, they found favor with all people. With all people. Their life displayed the wisdom, the glory of God. And so what happened as a result, day by day, people's lives started being changed. And that's what God does. And that's how he builds his church. And that's what he wants his church to be about. And we see a beautiful picture of that right here. And so I want to encourage you today to be the church. Let's be the church that Jesus is building. It's about changing lives. And we see right here, it changes a landscape. It changes a city. And that's what Jesus wants to do. Let's pray.